chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig round it and fertilise it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Thanks, but keep that that, uh, bit of the Bible open in front of you, but the children are going to leave for their groups. And as we study uh, this part of the Bible, uh, it's a topical question, is it? What would Jesus make of all the blood being shed in Palestine? It's almost a, a modern-day interview, isn't it? This uh, uh, question-answer session that Jesus is uh, saying. We'll come back to that uh, later, Angela. But it's the same part of the world where the action is at the moment. Uh, in Palestine, and it's, it seems to be the same amount of blood splashing around the place uh, as uh, lives uh, are taken. Oh, you might want to say, well, I've read the headlines this week. Uh, I wonder what uh, uh, Jesus would make of uh, ISIS or ISIL, uh, killing Christians uh, for their faith. And you look at verse 1, and you've got people dying in the middle of believing. And they're in the temple, and their lives have been taken from them. It's such a modern day scene. This could have been a bit of the Bible written at the end of uh, this week. And you might say, how is it that we're looking at this bit of the Bible today? Is it because we wanted to make sense of what happened last week? Well, of course we do. But the reason why we're looking at this part of the Bible is because we're plodding along Luke's Gospel and we're studying the Bible in a very new way which is to take one bit and the next bit and the bit after that which is actually not such a new way it's the way it was written in the first place so that's what we're doing and we've turned up at Luke at this part and it's just amazing how whenever you pick up the Bible it resonates with real life the really amazing thing is if you came back next week and, uh, or in six months' time and we picked up this with the Bible, uh, the question would be still relevant. Uh, why is there suffering? It seems like uh, it's the question that uh, we have all the time and it's certainly there in this passage helping us to answer it there. You see in chapter 13, 
and in verse 2, people are reeling from the latest massacre. They've seen the dead bodies on CNN, and they want to ask what Jesus makes of it. Is it because somehow sin is to blame? seems to be connected with that in the answer Jesus gives. He talks about the sin and the suffering, and so therefore they obviously have made that connection, and he's answering it. Is sin the reason why people suffer? Now, actually, it's very convenient if it is. It's brilliant if there's a connection between sin and suffering, because then we do, don't lose... Uh, grasp of the fact that God is powerful. Because we can say, well, God is powerfully punishing sin with suffering. So if there is a connection between sin and suffering, then we can hold on to the fact that God is powerful because he is punishing it. And that's quite convenient for us because then we can say to ourselves, I'm all right, Jack. I haven't done the stuff that these guys have done, therefore suffering won't come to me. If I can connect sin with suffering, let's me off the hook. And it may be that we want to try, therefore, to see if there's some connection between sin and suffering here. I mean, who knows what these Galileans have done to annoy Pilate? But it's not so easy to do it with the next one when the tower falls on 18 people in verse 4, and you wonder, where's the human error there? And actually, if you look at the small print of verse 1 and the sacrifice in the temple, well, you can't say that they're annoying Pilate. They're just in the temple worshipping God. They're just not the rebellious type. It seems like they are pretty innocent too. So you can't make the connection between sin and suffering when this sort of thing happens. But we like to, because it does let us off the hook. Remember how when people were thinking about AIDS, they thought, uh, well, sin and suffering certainly connected with AIDS. Uh, but I'm not gay, or I'm not a druggie. Therefore, hey, that lets me off the hook. I won't get AIDS until you look closely at the facts and you discover that the vast number of people who uh, get AIDS have done nothing wrong. So AIDS is not a laser-guided missile from God to punish specific types of sin. It's more like carpet bombing, isn't it? Everybody in the vicinity seems to get affected. Now, we hate it when the bunker bomb gets civilians as well as the target. And if we think that suffering is God's punishment of sin, then really we've got to think that God is not such a very good shot because he gets other people in the crossfire. And so what Jesus does in this part of the Bible is to break the connection that is made between suffering and sin. And he breaks the feeling that I'm all right, Jack, in the process. And he says two things 
that I want to really look at tonight. The first thing he says, I tell you no. He says that in verse 3, and he says that again in verse 5. I tell you no. Verse 5, I tell you no. There is no connection between what happened to these people and uh, their sin. They're not worse sinners. And I think in that process, he helps us not just to break the links. I mean, obviously, in some cases, there is a connection between sin and suffering. That's true. But in most cases, the resounding answer that Jesus gives is, I tell you, no. And therefore, when we look at suffering, and the worst case scenario of suffering is when people die, we are not to go drawing the wrong conclusions. The first thing that uh, would be helpful for us not to draw the wrong conclusions when someone dies is not to think that they are worse sinners than anybody else. That's what Jesus says here. Uh, uh, they are not worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. And in verse 4, they were not more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem at that time. They are not worse sinners. Now that stops us, I think, speaking ill of the dead. Uh, for example, it stops us in the recent celebrations of Margaret Thatcher's uh, funeral. Uh, who are we to say who's a worse sinner? And we're not to go down that road. But while it stops us speaking ill of the dead, it also stops us uh, making saints of the dead. Uh, because they're not worse sinners, but they are sinners. And we need, therefore, to modify the eulogy. Uh, they didn't come off the stained glass window. There may be people we uh, love who have died and we want lovely things to be said about them at their funeral service because we love them to bits, and yet they did have their force. You can't whitewash. So it is important that we hear what Jesus says. I tell you no when it comes to suffering. Don't make these links. They're not worse sinners, but they are sinners. And uh, that is true of everyone. But the second thing Jesus says in verses 3 and 5, also worth a close look at, because Jesus goes on to say, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now that sounds quite heartless of Jesus to say that, doesn't it? In the face of disaster. But what Jesus is wanting to do is to not talk about people's sin. Essentially what Jesus is talking about when he talks that way is to talk about God's power. Let me explain. If you want to know that God is powerful then the place to go is to the eternal future where he has the power, as it says here, to cause people to perish. In other words, to destine everyone to live under his eternal judgment. That is ultimately where God's power is ultimately to be seen. 
Now, when you begin to clock that, you no longer play the game of I'm all right, Jack, because it happened to them and it won't happen to me. At that point, you start to begin to understand, be careful, Jack. I could be next. And the future power of God is not seen in the fact that he stops things happening, bad things happening here and now. The future power of God is seen ultimately in his eternal judgment. On that day, there will be no doubt left in anybody's mind that God is massively, massively powerful. And to help us to take that day seriously, he sends us previews in advance, like the kind we read in Luke chapter 13. This is what it's like to live in a world that has turned its back on God. God gives previews of that day to show us where ultimately the world will come to. They are not worse sinners for these things to have happened to them, but they are sinners. We can't go saying that uh, anyone is uh, innocent. Everyone sins, and suffering, whether we experience it in a big way or a little way, is a preview of the judgment that all sinners are in line to receive. And each preview gives us a warning that judgment is far more widespread than we realize. No, it's not just that group that's just uh, gone down. No, unless you repent, you too will all perish. It's much more widespread than confined to a small little group. So the humble person, whenever they see suffering in somebody else, will say, I deserve the full-scale version of that, of what happened to those guys. That is what the humble person will do in their response to suffering. I'm a sinner, and I need to be careful, because uh, uh, I uh, am in line for judgment too. So it is important that we understand that the power of God is not seen in uh, the stopping of suffering, but in, this, in, 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 in the future with perishing. Because when we begin to do that, we'll notice something else about verses 3 and 5. You might have noticed it already. And that is how it starts. Unless... Now, the minute you have that, you have the opportunity of a different kind of future. It doesn't have to be this way. God's power in judgment can be avoided if we repent, if there's a new start with God. Now, it won't stop us from suffering if we repent. We still probably suffer. But it will stop us perishing if we repent. And that is why I think this little parable of the fig tree comes next in verses 6 to 9. Have a close look at it because 
What happens there is a little story that speaks of delay, that speaks of another chance. Give it another year. Let's see if there'll be a different result. You see, the people listening to this story that Jesus is giving them, just like us in this room, we've had no towers fall on us yet. Therefore, there's time available to us to uh, uh, see where there might be an alternative. If you hear that there's a holdup on the N25, then most sensible people will want to think of a different route. Uh, my uh, sat-nav on my phone uh, realizes that I'm not a sensible person, so it not only tells me that there's going to be a delay on the M25, but then gives me a, a separate route and says, will you please select this now? And that's a sensible thing to do, isn't it? And I tend to follow the advice. In other words, if you know that there's going to be danger ahead, well, you do want to skirt around it, avoid it, if you possibly can. And that's exactly why Jesus answered the way that he did. It's so that we can take a different direction. And the whole point of his coming was that on the cross, he didn't just simply take a preview of God's judgment, he took the full frontal assault of God's judgment so that we may have a preview, but we will never have the real thing. That is why Jesus is able to say, unless you repent, because if you do repent, then the future is different. So whatever people say about God, and there are people who say in the light of suffering, uh, that God's not powerful, let me assure you, the day will come when everybody for the whole of eternity will have no doubt whatsoever about the enormity of God's power both on the one hand to uh, see his hand in judgment as people perish, and I mean those who did not repent, and on the other hand sees how those who have repented have been like that fig tree that was given the extra year and the change meant that it was safe. So, there we are. What uh, take-home might there be for us as we look at this passage today? Now, look, it may be that you're someone who's brand new to church, or you haven't been for a long time. Well, it may be you're new to church, but my guess is you're not new to suffering. And most people have uh, had it uh, tough, I think especially in our state around here. And it's easy, isn't it, to ask, well, why? Is there a loving God? Well, think of it like this. Isn't God incredibly loving to let a preview come in the shape of suffering so that we can avoid the real thing and learn the lessons that the preview is there to give us? Isn't that an amazing, kind, and loving thing for God to do through the hardship of suffering? To help us to see this is a preview of what's to come. Let me start again with him. And it may be that I can't do anything about the suffering, but in his goodness, 
he has saved me from perishing. It'd be a wonderful thing for us to experience that, to discover that, and to come to trust that as a result of coming here tonight. What happens if we're churching? It may be that uh, people are used to going to church, and there comes a way of thinking that can be ours when we've been to church a bit. We can think that somehow going to church gives us that bulletproof vest where the explosions happen and hurt other people, but somehow the shrapnel never actually get close to us. Now, I think it's important, isn't it, to understand from pastors like this that this whole idea of you stick in with God and God will stick in with you, and we had, interestingly, a conversation when I went to visit my mother on Thursday and the Muslim lady who lived next door came to us and said, you say your prayers and do the right thing with God and he will do all the right things with you. There's that uh, little uh, deal that has been struck with God. Uh, I'll watch your back and you watch mine. But it doesn't happen like that if you look at the Bible. Here are people and suffering comes to God's people in the temple. And suffering comes to God's Son when he's on the cross. If suffering comes to God's people to give others a preview that they might avoid perishing in the future, then that is something that we might need to understand and accept. The key point is that God does not, in his power, rescue us from suffering, but he does save us from perishing. Maybe that you are a real follower of Jesus and it's a helpful thing in this passage to understand that there might be things that come to us in the future that could absolutely overwhelm us with sadness. It could be uh, something like... Uh, uh, fierce, murderous persecution, which is the kind of thing that happened in verse 1. You might be the family that ISIL come. Imagine if it was you and your family when ISIL come to the door and haul everybody outside and you know what's going to come next. Or it may be nothing quite as violent or uh, dramatic uh, as that, but it could be a fatal accident of the sort that happened in verse 4. These things happen. And these things will knock us unless we understand that we're living in a world that is sinful and therefore naturally going to give us previews of what God's judgment is like. The only way we'll stay on our feet and not be toppled off our trust in God is if we understand where God's incredible, immeasurable power is going to be focused. It'll be in the future when we understand that those who ultimately do not repent in pride think that God will never catch up with them. Well, in those moments, God makes the promise. They too will all alike perish. But equally there will be those great demonstrations of safety where God in his great goodness 
steers people as a result of those previews into new life. Maybe through what happens to you in whatever shape or form disaster takes. The people watching you may, may be steered clear into new life, avoid perishing as they repent and uh, seek God in a fresh way. But let's uh, uh, understand that that might be uh, how uh, God leads us, but we'll stop there and we'll take questions before we pray. So let me press the button to uh, halt proceedings here.